You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. Very honored to be here at MIT and um, with the um, uh, help of uh, the Comparative Media Studies program, and um, uh, particularly grateful to uh, Wen Kelly, the Associate Director for uh, the Melville Electronic Library, um, and uh, the literature section here for supporting this um, evening program. In the past, uh, Mel has had um, two Mel camps at my home institution at Hofstra University, and usually it's a, a one-day affair. You fly them in as quickly and get them out as quickly as possible. We have a, a crazy uh, day of activities, usually on a Friday. Um, and um, uh, uh, that was about all that people had time for or money for. Uh, coming here to MIT um, allows us to bring together uh, 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 important populations. Um, the, uh, the CMS group, uh, the Hyperstudio group, the MEL group, which itself consists of people who are uh, digitally inclined or Melville inclined only or a little of both. Um, we have people here um, who are um, editing Dickinson, editing Stowe's, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and so it's a diverse group. And I was telling my wife, uh, as I often do, I speak to her from time to time, um, in that, that twilight moment when both of us are achieving unconsciousness you know, uh, in the evening, that um, um, I was going to give this talk to, at, at, at MIT at, which she finally thought was kind of impressive, you know, that I would be able to come to MIT. And secondly, that it would be uh, with such a diverse group, and she simply said, good luck. Um, my hope here is to uh, give you a presentation that, that will um, inform you a little bit about fluid text theory and fluid text analysis, and do so without repeating to my friends in the Melville Electronic Library who have perhaps heard this a little too often, um, and, um, but to, to find kind of a balance between these, these um, groups. And, um, and yet also to um, try to make a statement about um, digital humanities without um, creating unconsciousness in, in our audience that has been hearing an awful lot about digital humanities. Um, so I think um, um, I think I'm a very brave person to be here tonight, and I, <laughs> I, I hope I can pull this off. This is vodka. 
Last week, the New York Times reported that Alabama has um, enacted immigration laws requiring people to prove birth, provide birth certificates at job sites, schools, and voting booths. As a result, thousands of workers have removed their children from schools and abandoned their homes for adjacent states. This news is unsettling for those who have worked to reduce racism, xenophobia, and re repression. The nature of this work might have involved passive resistance to unjust laws or simply teaching literature in the context of American history. Our teaching encourages students in their critical thinking about themselves and their culture. It reduces, we hope, rather than augments the fears that unsettle a democracy. And for starters, I would like to focus on three elemental fears. The first is the fear of meaning. Most of us feel empowered, not frightened, when we discover meaning in a seemingly inert text. But such a discovery can be the source of anxiety and suspicion for those who are not practiced in interpretation. For instance, my students. <laughs> Ahab, Ishmael, even Stubb have their interpretations of God, whales, and the zodiac. But for Starbuck, it is all just the flapping of empty sails. A second fear is the fear of difference. Now here I do not mean the too easy assumption that racism is rooted merely in my fear of your different skin color. This superficial fear only masks the deeper fear that the different identity of the other dismantles the supreme efficiency of my inviolate identity. The existence of you compromises the existence of me, and multiculturalism only compounds this fear of identity. And the third is the fear of change. We don't like to change. And yet, a democratic culture flourishes on the assumption that freedom and equality enables change, upward or downward. Now, a fourth fear is a convergence of the three, the fear of the change that makes a meaningful difference. Alabama's new anti-immigration law is a reaction to the fear of population changes that make a meaningful difference to those in power. But we also find this triple whammy fear when we confront the digital, which is a technological change that threatens to make a meaningful difference in our lives. When it comes to the effect of technology on culture, we have been deeply fearful ever since the Industrial Revolution. Put more novels into the hands of more readers and put more images, still photos, and moving images, moving pictures, into the minds of more viewers than ever before, all at the expense, it is feared, of the poem or the painting or the opera. Yet at the same time, we are assured that the digital can generate new compensatory ways of reading and seeing. But can it assuage our anxieties about change, meaning, and difference when we confront a fluid text? We like our texts to be stable, unchanging, immutable. But texts exist in multiple versions. They evolve because of revision 
and our awareness that a once stable text is fluid challenges our assumptions of textual stability. The versions of a fluid text are an embodiment of change and meaningful difference. Now, I don't propose that textual revision equates with immigration or that what I say here today will lessen the anxieties of the citizens of Alabama. But I do feel that by enabling us to witness how a fluid text evolves, the digital sharpens our critical attention on the dynamics of change and differentiation in ways that are meaningful to us in coming to terms with the evolution of our cultural and multicultural identity. Texts and cultures evolve, and the digital can show how. Fundamental to my project here is the idea that shifting textual identities reflect shifting human identities, that in revising their texts, writers revise themselves. Moreover, editors and adapters revise the texts of writers in ways that reveal the anxieties and fears of a culture. The study of revision, what I call uh, fluid text analysis, brings us to moments of change that comprehend both authorial creativity and cultural appropriation. As part of the Melville Electronic Library, we are developing a digital workspace called Text Lab that enables the editing of revision and allows users to inspect a fluid text, a fluid text evolution through multiple textual identities. But first, let me explain what I mean by a fluid text and why you should be afraid, very afraid. Take type P. As a single title, it includes several overlapping versions evident in manuscript as well as additional versions in its first British and revised American editions of 1846. It has also appeared in other kinds of versions. I like the one on the left. Don't you? Uh, that's a Greek translation of this American comic book version. Or take Moby Dick. As a single title, this work also includes significantly different British and American texts. But from a fluid text perspective, we also include Melville's famous appropriations from numerous sources, which are essentially Melville's versions of other authors in the form of quotation. And we can include various adaptations in illustrated books, adaptations for children and adults, comic books, this has got to be my favorite. Um, um, this is actually the accurate rendition of what happens to Aham. I've done this before with other groups, but and some of you have done this before, but can we all together give a yog? On the count of, on the count of three, can we give a yog? One, two, three. Yog! Oh, I like this group because you, you, you extended it through, through the whole thing. Um, yeah, that's what happens to Ahab. So now you don't have to read the book. <laughs> um, films, we've got films, both silent and talking. Plays for stage, radio, television, and opera. 
not to mention homages in the fine arts. This is from the current opera Moby Dick by Jake Heggie. Um, and this is Talise Trevigny, um, um, a soprano who, who plays Pip. Um, and um, it will be performing uh, next in the United States in San Diego on February 26th. I'm going to be there. I hope you'll come too. Traditional scholarly editors consider these kinds of textual identities, the manuscript revisions before publication and the numerous adaptations after publication, as non-literary. That's the traditional view. Essentially, publication validates textuality in this view, so that the extra textual identities seen here created during a writer's creative process or by others uh, because of the writer's influence have little bearing on traditional editorial processes. However, fluid text editing expands the notion of intentionality to include the author's shifting intentions throughout the creative process and publishing process. And it expands the idea of the work, capital W, to include not only the author's achievements, but also the field of appropriations that transform the authorial text into a cultural icon. The, trouble, uh, the, the problem, um, the problem uh, for fluid text editing is how to create critical editions, or rather a critical archive that can display all of the textual identities of the fluid text and provide ways to navigate the versions, to compare them and see the sequence of changes, to read the otherwise invisible revision texts of, let's say, Type E, and to permit critics to compose revision narratives and argue for the revisions they see. The Melville Electronic Library is a critical archive that, when completed, will contain at its textual core not only the texts of the numerous versions of Melville, which you might call the Melville Cloud, but also the tools and workspace allowing users to access and make sense of the cloud. And let me show you what I mean. Type recounts Melville's four-week adventure living among Type villagers uh, on the South Pacific island of Nukuhiva. The Taipei were fierce, tattooed warriors with a reputation for cannibalism that frightened even neighboring cannibals. During his stay, Melville witnessed a primitive and sexually aggressive society far different from the civilized world, even more savage than life on a whaling ship. And in assuming the name Tamo, Melville fearlessly embraces the cultural differences that Taipei society presents, at least for a while. But when his hosts seem to become his captors, and when they insist upon tattooing him, changing him into an other, Tamo's defense of the savage turns to a fear of the savage, and Tamo skedaddles. Tamo fears giving up home and mother for savage life. He will not evolve in that direction. He exhibits a fear of change that would make, for him and for us, a meaningful difference. However, as Melville wrote his narrative, he also revised his text. It, too, evolved, 
and the manuscript leaves that survive from his working draft of the book show how Melville's identity and the textual identities of Typee evolved together through stages and versions of himself and his narrative. One pattern of revision was Melville's systematic reduction of the word savage from his text. Melville realized that while he wanted to disabuse his readers of their stereotypical conception of the native islanders as savages, he nevertheless found himself promoting that stereotype in his narrative. In reducing his use of the word savage, he liberalized his text and himself and in an effect managed his fear of cultural change through acts of textual revision. This revision process is also evident in scenes that do not involve the word savage. Let's look at one closely. When Tamu's companion, Toby, attempts to leave the Taipei Valley, he is attacked by Hapar tribesmen and returns back to the camp wounded. Tamu's island servant, Cory Cory, then gives an oration apparently against the perfidious Hapars. But Tamo is at a loss as to understand what Kori Kori is saying. In this section, ironically titled, The Elephants of Kori Kori, Tamo tells us why. The, uh, the language to him is unintelligible gibberish. It reminds him of, quote, a man with a mouthful of chub spluttering, choking, and spitting the bones out. And all, of, and all of these mad sounds seem to be served up in a hasty kind of fricassee. Or rather, a fricassee of vowels and consonants dashed with a spice of cayenne. Listening to Cory Cory gives Tomo dramatic pains, and he concludes... What it all meant, I could not for the life of me conjecture. Without, he was employing the occasion to enlarge upon the transitory nature of all human enjoyments and the vanity of terrestrial expectations. And thus, Melville's episode ends with the kind of lampoon of the islander that recalls Twain's later um, comic derogations of Indians, the French, and the German language. Or at least that is how the lampoon ends in manuscript. What ended up in print is quite different. Of course, Melville was revising the lampoon even as he was writing it, as the numerous revision sites in manuscript attest. And even af but even after completing the first, this first draft of Taipei, Melville continued to revise in preparing a readable fair copy for his publisher. In addition, his editor in England made changes in copy editing the fair copy. Furthermore, Melville's brother Gansevoort, living in London at the time, made revisions while page-proofing. What appeared in the British first edition, seen here, of Tomo's Lampoon pales in comparison to Melville's original manuscript la uh, version of the Lampoon. The British text reads, as he continued his harangue, however, Cory Cory, in emulation of our more polished orators, 
began to launch out rather diffusely into other branches of his subject, enlarging probably upon the moral reflections it suggested, and proceeded in such a strain of unintelligible and stunning gibberish that he actually gave me the headache for the rest of the day. What remains of the lampoon are fragments of the originating language, slightly modified. Unintelligible gibberish is now unintelligible and stunning gibberish. Now the modification is a transformation of rheumatic pains, which implies a general physical stiffness, to headache, which implies pain due to mental exertion. This upgrade to headache also suggests the consequences of one culture catching itself trying to comprehend the inexplicable nature of another culture and the other. But a more complicated transformation involves Tamo's original conclusion that Cory Cory's harangue is bemoaning, quote, the transitory nature of all human enjoyments and the vanity of terrestrial expectations. By hinting that this savage could express such thoughts, Melville is backhandedly parodying his own presumably more civilized culture, like our more polished orators. But this parodic speculation is revised into virtual non-existence by the bland vestigial paraphrase, moral reflections. In addition to these transformations, Melville completely removed other phrases. Gone, for instance, is the image of Cory Cory's speech as spluttering, choking, and spitting. Also deleted is the idea of Polynesian language resembling a hasty fricassee of vowels and consonants. What are we to make of these revisions? Did Melville think better of his satire? Did he fear that the implied parody of Western culture might offend his readers? Did a British editor or his brother make these changes? More to the point, has the text evolved in an important way? Overall, the revisions tend to tone down Melville's lampoon of Cory Cory. But we cannot begin to see whether these revisions make a meaningful difference until we actually edit the various textual identities of this fluid text to see how the changes were made. But editing a fluid text presents problems. When we read a printed text, our lives are secure. Each word is clearly printed. But when we read a working draft manuscript, we see texts in hiding. Our immediate desire is to get at those hidden revision texts, to glimpse the text's former textual identity. But the only way to access those hidden texts of revision is for you to edit them into existence. You must copy them, tag them as deletion or insertion, determine their sequence, connect them to other revision sites. Moreover, editing is a critical act, and different editors will see the same revisions differently. Trust me, they've told me. 
Where I see Melville's toning down of Tamo's lampoon of Cory Cory as part of his strategy to reduce savagery in his text, you might link the toning down to other revision patterns entirely. In fact, you might see revisions that I missed. Put another way, we cannot witness a revision until we begin to narrativize what we think the revision process is. At this point, I, um, purely for my MIT audience, I invoked the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but I decided to, to, to take that out because I don't know what the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is. <laughs> so we cannot witness a revision until we begin to narrativize what we think the revision process is. But this, by this, I mean that we need to come up with a reasonable account of the story, the how and why, behind the textual changes in order to know if these changes arguably make a meaningful difference. But to write a revision narrative, the editor must first determine the sequence of revisions that Melville probably experienced in his creative process. And we cannot come up with a probable revision sequence until we investigate the hidden logic within each revision act or revision site. The deletions, insertions, or the false starts occurring as Melville composes for the first time, and the subsequent expansions, contractions, and substitutions that Melville performs on what he has already written. Revision is largely a matter of addition and subtraction, but each revision inscribed in manuscript is a code for ideas that were never fully expressed as a text. The editor decodes the revision codes. To repeat, we cannot witness revision until we begin to see revision sites for the otherwise invisible revision texts that they represent. But because seeing and witnessing are differently problematic arts, the study of revision is best performed in a forum in which many users can interact with documents and collaborate on making revision sequences and narratives together. The fluid text editor's challenge then is to create a critical edition within the critical archive that enables readers to see revision sites and determine revision sequences so that they can also weigh the probability of the edition's critically derived revision narratives. In developing my electronic fluid text edition of Melville's Taiping manuscript through the University of Virginia, I was able to go only so far, and shortly I will show you how we are going further. But for a moment, Let's take a look at how the eloquence of Cory Cory episode and the question of the meaningfulness of Cory Cory's fricassee language may be rendered editorially. The electronic editions display consists of two frames that can contain any of the edition's features. Here I've chosen to put the manuscript image in the upper frame and the lower holds the diplomatic transcription for the page, which emulates typographically Neville's hard-to-read handwriting. It deciphers words, discloses deleted text, and places insertions in their proper place. This is the, the 
diplomatic transcription, you'll see how the attempt here is to make everything sort of match what's up there. But you notice it's actually readable compared to Melville's notoriously bad handwriting. Even so, the diplomatic transcription cannot tell us how Melville revised his text and in what sequence. It cannot, for that matter, clarify where one revision site begins and another ends. That's a critical act. Therefore, to display the revision sites, I created a base version of the manuscript text simply by following Melville's instructions. I deleted his deletions and inserted his insertions. Essentially, this base version is the final reading text of the manuscript. And it serves as a textual map for displaying revision sites. Here, the yellow highlighting depicts the places in the base version where a deletion or insertion has taken place on the manuscript page. And here, you can see the base version and yellow highlight rendering of the various revision sites related to Melville's intricacy of vowels and consonants image. <coughs> Notice that, the Melville, that Melville deleted his first attempt at the image um, in the manuscript line that is represented in blank line 33 in the base version. Right, up, right here. It's not in the base version because it was deleted in the manuscript. Revisions that were made after Melville completed his working draft manuscript, either by Melville, his editor, or brother, are visible to us only by collating the base version against the first British edition version. And those changes are highlighted in pink. Note the predominance of pink, indicating, as we know, that this entire passage was significantly reduced in print. And text that was revised first in manuscript and later again in print appears in a fashionable peachy blend of yellow and pink. Uh, we were very proud of this blend, uh, <laughs> which you can barely, barely see at this point. As you might expect, each highlighted revision site is a hyperlink to a revision sequence and narrative combined together. Let's return to the yellow manuscript frame. When I click on the fricassee site, the 15-step revision, uh, revision sequence and narrative for that site pops up. Here in step five, we see that Melville first rendered his fricassee image as, quote, all these mad sounds seem to be served up in a hasty fricassee. You can see it in the bold under step five. I only had space to put these in. Um, uh, I edited it. And this he modified to a hasty kind of fricassee in step six. There. But in step seven, he deleted the entire sentence. However, the image returns in step eight with it was nothing more than a fricassee of vowels and consonants dashed with a spice of cayenne. <laughs> Eventually, in step 13, uh, pictured here, Melville landed on his final wording, it might have been denominated a fricassee of vowels and consonants. Kind of bland. Melville labored to make his image of 
Polynesian's fricassee language work. But as we know, it disappeared from Taipei along with most of the other vivid expressions Melville assembled to lampoon Cory Cory. The idea of language, any language as a fricassee, is an admirable trope. But Melville was willing to sacrifice it because in my narration of this revision sequence, he realized that he had gone too far. It is easy to laugh at a foreign language, and Melville was not above making easy fun of Cory Cory. But in belaboring the humor, he risked belittling his islander friend. A compressed sequence traces the whittling away of the belittlement. In step one here, Melville characterized Cory Cory's spluttering, choking, and spitting as mad sounds which served as his initial segue to his fricassee image. But in step two, he composed, as he composed, he dropped mad sounds in order to focus on fricassee. Language, not the madness of others, occupied his attention. Hasty is also deleted um, as cayenne is introduced. And in step three, both are dropped. Then in step four, the fricassee sentence is dropped entirely. For me, these revisions are changes that made a meaningful difference for Melville. By pulling back on the lampoon, he moved his characterization of Cory Cory from a mad-sounding savage to something more human. And being able to read Melville's revisions makes a meaningful difference to us as well. Discerning a sequence and crafting a narrative to support it are critical acts that enable our witnessing the evolution of a thought or rather the evolution, as Emerson might have put it, of man thinking. But I'm not done yet. Maybe you dispute my narrative. Maybe you disagree with my deciphering of Melville's hand. After all, hasty could be tasty, and if Melville wrote tasty, then his revision to Cayenne makes more sense. Is that an uncrossed T, or is that an H? Damn if I know. I went with hasty. And maybe you have found out, as I did, that Melville saved his image of language as a fricassee in Taipei for his next book, Omu. Here, Melville observes Long Ghost, a Westerner, engaged in drunken conversation with Varby, a native, both speaking Polynesian, but together as equals. Thus, we can see Melville using his fricassee image, once a comic barb of colonial derision, now to advance a genial and cosmopolitan depiction of island life, of white and Polynesian speaking together with alcohol. But the problem with my electronic edition of Taipei is that it is static. It was designed for hyperlinking and little else. It reproduces my scholarship. It hyperlinks to my scholarship, my sites, my sequences and narratives. But it cannot allow you and me to collaborate on editing or to compare our alternative readings, or to add new information.
The Melville Electronic Library is developing several tools and workspaces that will facilitate interactive and collaborative editing. Tomorrow, Kurt Fent of MIT's HyperStudio will demonstrate Mixamize and Annotation Studio, which allow users to compare source texts, MEL texts, and adaptation texts in one screen. On Saturday, Steve Olson-Smith and Peter Norberg will demonstrate the latest iteration of Melville Marginalia Online, not so much a tool, but a display, which is itself a critical archive of Melville's reading and source texts. Tonight, let me show you TextLab, which facilitates fluid text editing of revision. Our focus text for uh, TextLab is not Type but the Billy Budd manuscript. Um, the Type manuscript is essentially a fragment of three chapters, three full chapters, and three central chapters. Um, Billy Budd is the entire narrative in manuscript, but it is um, a bit of a nightmare manuscript. And uh, if you will be joining us on Saturday at the Houghton Library at some other college, um, uh, you'll be able to see some of those leads and a, and a live demonstration of TextLab, which here I'm only going to be doing through slides. Our focus uh, for TextLab, um, I mean, at present, TextLab enables two activities, primary editing and secondary editing. Now, um, I, I chose primary and secondary just simply because these um, were the most imaginative terms I could possibly come up with. If you have $100,000 to give to uh, the Melville Electronic Library, I will gladly change primary editing to your name. In primary editing, the object is to transcribe all markings and texts of a given leaf, including both revised and unrevised wording. The leaf image appears in the upper frame. In the lower frame, the editor has transcribed the first line or so of text, as you can see down there. Everything is for a term venerated in Navy up there. As you can see, it's perfectly clear. Everything is for a noble, uh, humble land in the Navajo, and um, that's just, and that's Melville writing uh, and good behavior. But come on, he was uh, he was seventy, and he was um, um, uh, probably also drunk. But that's another story. No, he was tired. Um Notice. Uh, in the lower frame, the TEI XML coding is automatically supplied. Um, and when I say automatic, it's uh, not entirely automatic. Um, much of it is, but also if you have to do special kind of tagging, you can click on here and you'll get a whole array of tags that will allow you to um, uh, uh, highlight this word, select a tag, for instance, illegible. And, which is a tag, by the way, and you can surround that word with that particular tag. Um, these kinds of tags here, the facsimile tags, are generated by TextLab every time you get a new page, and, um, and I will show you some others that are automatically generated. The reason this is important uh, for
for anyone here to know is that it is essential for all text to be uh, tagged or coded in XML um, uh, format and following those protocols. We want to make TextLab accessible to um, knowledgeable, informed scholars who don't really know that much about tagging. So we want to make it as easy as possible, the editing part of it, so that your students um, who are not uh, adept at TEI XML tagging or yourself can come in and, and do some primary editing. To indicate a revision site, the editor uses a tool to place a coded rectangle around the revision directly on the digital image. You see the uh, icon up there in the circle, and in the um, hexagon there you see um, the box that has been put around it. You use that, turns into a little crosshair, you just draw a box around it. It automatically puts a number in there, which is the biggest number I've ever seen, and um, usually it's much smaller, and um, it uh, uh, is then, uh, with those dashed lines, um, automatically puts those codes around that box into the database. Okay, so um, then um, you uh, highlight um, the word that is associated with that box. It's highlighted there. And when you click on the box again, this uh, dialog box pops up, which uh, asks you, is this an addi addition or deletion, and, and so on and so forth. And you, in this case, the sailors is a deletion you put, uh, you click on deletion, and it will automatically put around the word sailors um, the code that goes with that box. And once the connection has been made with this text and that image, you have um, that data put into a database, and it is there uh, for future for future use. And this is all done automatically. Um, so that the uh, editor doesn't have to type in all of this information individually. Once a revision type is selected, the rectangle is automatically, oops, um, well, okay. Um, once the revision type is, is selected, the rectangle is automatically coded and linked to the revision text that has been transcribed uh, in the TEI XML text editor. Now text and image are stored in the database. The stored primary editing or transcribing of the revised and unrevised manuscript now becomes the data for the creation of revision sequences and narratives in secondary editing. Now in secondary edit, the object is to create a revision sequence and narrative linked to the revision sites and text marked and linked in primary editing. So once the editor has completed the um, uh, marking up of all the revision sites in, uh, uh, on a leaf and done all of the primary editing for it, and that's all stored away, 
an individual can then pull up that particularly uh, uh, coded uh, image and plop it in up here with all of the sites marked. Here the editor selects a revision site by clicking on the already marked up image in the frame above. Once clicked, the number for that site appears in the site box in the secondary editing frame below. So there you see it down there. Then the editor transcribes the text of the first step of the revision process in the adjacent revision sequence text box to the right. And here I've supplied the unrevised text of Sailors because Melville first had to have written Sailors as, as text before he deleted it. Next, the editor must compose a revision narrative for this step. Notice that as with the Type P electronic edition, the revision sequence is linked to, and in fact, unlinkable, unlinkable from its revision narrative. This ensures that each step is argued for. My point here is that uh, you, can't, you can't get out of this. You can't finish or complete a revision sequence without narration. That is to say, it's a critical act, and if you make this decision here, then you have to explain it here. So we use the word narrative both as a sort of way to gesture to the fact that a revision process is a, is a process, and it is a history, and it's a story, and needs to be narrativized. But I use narrative also in the sense of argumentation. The editor repeats the process until the revision sequence is completed. And editors' completed revision sequences and narratives are also stored in the database. And then other editors may reference these sequences and offer alternate sequences for the same set of revision sites or an overlapping set. And you'd be surprised how many different points of view there are in editing and how just uh, how many alternates you would have and putting these together. Just for the simple sense of, I don't know what that word is there, it looks like SS something and has been transcribed as S something, but actually I believe it is N, A, and half of a V to be the beginning or a false start on the word Navy or Naval, which comes later on down the line. And I can choose to, to um, incorporate that into my revision narrative. I can select this and this and talk about those two as priming a sequence, whereas you might see that this one and this one are connected and this one, so that you have different choices, different selections. They overlap with mine, and we need to get people talking about this um, uh, in order to uh, establish a kind of field of discourse. Next year, with NEH funding, MEL will complete the development of TextLab so that users can generate from the MEL database the same kinds of features on display in the Type P electronic edition. And, uh, in fact, we have a representative here, Kristen Jen Jensen, 
um, uh, from um, performance software, and she and her company will be meeting with me in, uh, at Hofstra in November. You didn't know that, but we are. <laughs> and uh, to plan the next phase, the final phase of, um, uh, uh, of Text Lab. And it will look something like this. This uh, it will it will also include you push a button and automatically you will get a diplomatic transcription of each leaf. You'll push another button and you'll get a base version of each leaf. And you push another button with and with highlight, highlighted links, you will get um, uh, a base version with highlighted links to an edited display of revision sequences and narratives. So. This is, in a sense, a kind of, um, we're in the middle of, of a process. As is evident with the Cherokee uh, walking the trail of tears, or the slave riding the Underground Railroad, or the gay man or woman coming out of the closet, or the Mexican worker fleeing Alabama, Americans know racism, xenophobia, and class conflict. We feel the change that threatens to make a meaningful difference in our lives. But rather than confront the invisible core of the problems that democratic living poses, we fall easy prey to the rantings of partisanship, the rantings and partisanship of demagogues. I have no illusions that my work as a mobile scholar and textual scholar and digital scholar can make any dent in the serious problems that confront our democracy today. I, I cannot enact legislation that will lessen cultural anxiety or reduce fear. My sphere is with students, colleagues, and fluid texts. But my thought is that the more we are able to articulate changes from one version of a text to another, the more adept we might become at creating critical narratives of the revisions we see happening not only in a fluid text, but also in our culture and in our lives and ourselves. The Taipei, with Taipei, Melville revised himself from a jokey sailor with some colonialist yarns to spin into a cosmopolitan, and he turned into a cosmopolitan writer with plenty of versions of himself to pursue. And we can trace the revisions to this personal identity and the changes he made to textual identities preserved in manuscript. Melville did not seem to fear change. He relished the search for meaningful differences, and yet he felt the exhaustion. To Hawthorne, he wrote, Lord, when shall we be done changing? It is a condition of our humanity to change and an obligation not to live in fear of it. We are scholars, teachers, and students rolled into one. And I feel that the process of knowing the nature of variant textual identities, we become more self-conscious and more self-critical of ourselves as evolving human beings, more capable of making sense of the changes that make a meaningful difference. The digital cannot solve our problems, but it can teach us to read change more clearly. And it is in this way that a machine can make us more human. Thanks. You want to mull on that? <laughs> if you want to speak
the uh, microphones over there. You won't get picked up on the tape unless you speak into the microphones. So I'm afraid people will have to walk. Or I can bring them back. Hi, John. Um, I was uh, uh, struck by uh, the provocativeness of some of your opening comments, especially when you were looking at the comic books about wondering where the act of textual fluidity or composition ends, um, especially as you get into cultural appropriation. Um, I'm doing a course right now on the fluid text of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and we've been having um, lively discussion with the undergraduates about what's an adaptation, what's a remix, what's a mashup. Um, basically, I've been giving them a choice of Hutch and Bryant or Novice uh, when we look at certain of these adaptations. Um, uh -huh. What's your take on I mean, Billy Budd's the interesting example, of course, because we don't have a, a stable, well, we do have a stable text, but it, it's never published. Um, like, How far do you want to go with the notion of, of the fluid text? Does the fluid text for you encompass you know, even contemporary adaptations of Taipei, uh, and how do we bring them into the mix? Well, I think, I think that's a great question, and I think the answer is yes. You do, uh, or, or how far do I want to go all the way? Um, it's, uh, 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 it, it kind of comes down to, um, um, from an editorial point of view, uh, a tussle that I have with traditional editing, which, and I tried to gesture to this in the, in the presentation, that the, a work, and I'm meaning capital W work, can only be the published text or some kind of version of the published text. But um, I, a fluid text approach sees this as, as all evolving. The, the, uh, that's radical enough. The other step is into appropriation and into further um, uh, appearances of, of the work as modified through adaptation. And I think, um, for me, um, what I see is that um, the text has always been in the mind of the writer, and it is a kind of um, transforma transformative process once it's put out there. And once it's put out there, it then becomes and takes on a life of its own. There's no sense in restricting our notion of the growth of a text from source to text to appropriation, just to the text itself, because it has it, it continues its life on. The problem uh, the problem is not only how to uh, measure that and gauge it, but to um, acknowledge in academia that it's important to to put them together. And I think the reader becomes the key here. Um, it's uh, when a text is published, the text becomes the readers. Traditional scholars, traditional editors want, in some sort of way, to keep the text inviolate and uh, to be uh, the provenance of the author only. But all authors know that they will continue to revise if given a chance, and that there's no sanctity to publication. And that once you break through and see that readers are a um, creative process themselves, that the mere act of reading is a transformation of a text, the interpretation of a reading, book groups are a reading, they, the, a, a text becomes a different life. So what's the difference between reading 
and making a movie about Moby Dick. It is itself a, an act of reading. So I, um, uh, these are the, some of the ways that I um, like to argue for uh, including what I call cultural revision um, or, a, or a cultural a adaptation. It also presents enormous problems digitally. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, one thing that happened in the Taipei case is the manuscript was rediscovered. Um, and so it was gone for a long time. Right. Okay, so um, when you're... It knew where it was. Well, it, it, it knew. Yeah. Uh, but in your history of reading Taipei, um, it didn't come first. Right. Um, an, another edition came. Right. Um, and so you said that the the order of sequence, um, it seems to be um, appositing uh, an, an author's moments of thought. Um, one might say instead, um, start with the one I read first um, and then move to the next moment in time when the manuscript becomes available. So there is no original moment unless you argue for authorial intention is somehow originating, or does that matter? Um, sure it matters. Um, but um, I think uh, to sort of pick up on one thing that you're saying and, um, and what Les was asking about in terms of adaptation is that um, um, we, come, we come to um, a text in... It, in curious ways, and we need to be more frank and open about it. I was not born with Moby Dick in hand. It was a painful delivery, but, uh, but I didn't have that book in hand, and I didn't read it first. I saw the John Huston movie first as a child. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, how do, how do people make entrance? How do they access a text? And in uh, how many people here read Sherlock Holmes first, let's say? Or did you see the innumerable television and movie adaptations of Sherlock Holmes? It's the same kind of issue. So my edition of Taipei came after the first edition of Taipei, and it might be um, people's access to it uh, uh, first or not. But I don't think... Um, I think we put too much pressure on the original, on the on the notion of of original intent, and failed to see that an, while an author's original intent is vital to know, it also shifts, and it also gets appropriated, and it gets changed. And what's really important here in our editing is to be able to demonstrate to people the difference between those textual identities. This is what Melville did first and then later in revising Taipei. But this is, this, is the this is the movie of Taipei, and it's a god-awful difference, and there's quite a distance. Well, the distance between them is, is a measure of our culture. It's a measure of our desire. It's a measure of industries uh, in Hollywood. 
requiring certain texts to be certain ways. We desire texts to be in our image. We want Moby Dick to be uh, about Gregory Peck. Uh, but we also need to know that while that was an important moment, it's not, it, it's just a, 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 a point in a long process of appropriation. I also think that appropriation is what makes um, a work like Moby Dick live. Um, it also it, it makes it uh, the cultural icon that it is. It wouldn't it wouldn't exist without it. So you have to edit. You have to know it exists. I think. I think there's food. I'm a Quaker. I can live with silence. I do it all the time. Hi there. Hi. So the text lab software seems to me like a really valuable scholarly tool, but uh, my question is, do you, do you think the idea of fluid text itself is a scholarly idea by definition, or might there be broader applications for that? Um, to, to put it this way, we know that consumers will pay extra for a DVD or a Blu-ray with deleted scenes, but will readers pay more for a fluid text edition of a book with deleted sentences? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, I, I think that's a real smart-ass question. Um, um, and yes, I, I do think it's scholarly. Um, I, I think what you what you were getting at is is, is it just academic? Is this or is there something about this and? Uh, years ago, yes, in you know, I was I was in whatever it was that preceded Blockbuster, looking for uh, looking at uh, you know early DVDs, and somebody standing next to me said, "God, look at this! You can see all of the different versions of it," and I figured if Joe Schmo, who was you know there, uh, out of the blue, would, had this fascination, I, I I thought that there could very well be um, an appeal to this. But I was thinking mostly in terms of just the kind of fundamental appeal that all of us have when we see something that's canonical and then you find that something has been taken out, something has been removed. Um, when I teach a familiar poem uh, by Emily Dickinson, Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, there are several revisions that are there. And you would be amazed at how you, when you teach it, you then show, well, you know, this word uh, um, sleeps used to be lies. What's the difference between sleeping and lying in this tomb? And students are quiet, and then they begin to say, well, sleep implies waking up, whereas lying is inert. There's a difference. And they see it instantly, and they really, and from that point on, the conversation just happens, the discourse happens in the classroom. I don't have to do anything. I think the second part of what I'm hearing you're asking um, is, uh, what are the applications for this in the real world? Um, and, and I think it's, uh, um, I, I keep a clip file from the New York Times um, of called my fluid test clip file. And every six weeks there's an article in the New York Times. Oh, you know, 
um, the government had a report about uh, a certain medication, but the government uh, uh, just deleted all of these lines, and you can't see what's in them. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, there was an art the clipping I did today was an article about a family that um, has all different kinds of racial mixings in it. They showed a family tree of who uh, created this person, and they had a spectrum of very dark to um, uh, very blonde, all from the same uh, gene pool, all from the same family, all real people. And I, I, I instantly saved that. What does that have to do with who attacks? Except for the fact that all those people are versions of what came before, and all of them sense change, and all of them feel different. They feel difference. And what I was trying to get across today is that there is a kind of fundamental psychological need to confront um, differences and the fear that we have of it. And so I don't know right now if there are any industrial uses for fluid text analysis, but I think there are um, important major intellectual differences, uh, uh, implications for how we think, how we teach, how we read a text, our expectations for what a text is, um, and things like that. I, I don't know if that answers your, your question. Yes, I mean, my question is not particularly clearly formulated, but has to do, I suppose, with the idea of, uh, of the sequence. It's part because I'm not entirely taken by the idea of, of editing as, in fact, reconstitution of the process of authority intention. It's precisely insofar as authority intention seems to me ultimately back formations or imputations based on interpretations of those revisions. In any case, this is kind of a circular problem that we, we're stuck with. But it seems to me at least a sense which one can distinguish in two levels of sequencing. One has to do with the kind of sequencing you're talking about, but there's a way in which the text you're looking at, um, you treat that sequence of revisions as a narrative within a static moment, right? But there's also another set of sequences which is, it seems to be purely material. That's to say the sequence in which a copy text emerged in which, in fact, revisions were done, regardless of what, what intentions were. And I'm thinking now, for example, of the work that Lawrence Rainey has done in The Wasteland, um, in which what, he's, what he does by looking at the paper, that the, the pretty material process, the paper that Elliot was using, when he bought it, who he's living with, simply figuring out a sequence, in, which is, and then, of course, there's an interpretation that goes on to that as well. But it seems to me that actually is a different kind of sequencing than the yeah, kind it, it of... It is. I, I think that there's some, some distinction needs to be made, and I want to talk to you to... Yeah, no, that's a great question. About no, it's an, important, it's an important question, mm -hmm. and sequencing is not only variable um, because of... Um, uh, you'll see a different sequence from what I see, which is kind of the, the local level that I was presenting here, but that there... Um, uh, you can sort of determine what I call local sequencing, that this, this word had to have appeared before this one. And in some cases, you can determine that, that this word down here actually triggered that change. So you can make these changes within a kind of time frame that is local. But obviously, for something like Billy Bug, which is a manuscript of 346 leaves uh, or more, and written on the back and written uh, uh, on the front, and verso and recto, and with clips and patches and um, 
uh, different numbering systems on it. Uh, not different paper so much, but different inks. You really have a very, a very complicated situation that has to be seen globally. Um, so text lab is, is conceivably, it, it all depends on the kind of level of coding that you want to do with it. Uh, if it's something as complicated as Billy Buck, which has, uh, according to uh, scholars in the, in the 60s, nine different stages of, of, um, of evolution. Um, what we want to do um, um, uh, with, um, with Billy Budd is to take that scholarship and all those stages and see um, if we can't visualize it. The project is called How Billy Grew. And we want to see exactly how those stages visually did, but not to create a cartoon, but to have the visualization and allow you to stop it so that you can see uh, moments of local revision. Um, so uh, you're raising very important questions about the, the global ways in which you can see time. The fact of the matter, the damning fact of the matter is that Billy Budd grew one way and one way only. But we don't know what that is, and we never will. <laughs> the only way we can get close to that is for a, a room full of people to, to look at those stages lo locally and globally and see if there isn't more than what uh, scholars in the 60s missed. And they tell you in their scholarship, it's interesting, it's kind of eerie. They say, uh, we don't know what, what this, what's going on here, but people will in the future. We'll get to it. And in 1962, I don't know that they, I, I think they were thinking about computers in 1962, but I don't think they had any idea that things would come to this. And um, we're very close, I think, um, to, you know, to uh, uh, getting moving on the global. Um, but still, Text Lab is really cool. Um, on that kind of question about the global and the local, I've been formulating this one just before you brought up the, the case of the Wasteland, which also has, of course, Pound right. as this editorial presence within it. And that made me think, well, in a homegrown Malvillian context, the Kraken edition of Pierre uh, seems to me an apt place to think about the question of a more macro type of editing problem where you have a case being made post hoc for an edition of that book as a masterpiece that would supersede the authority of print in its initial form. And you were sort of saying that part of the notion of fluid text is to unpack the authority of print in a way but Parker's sort of attempt there to kind of say, no, those were 11th hour changes uh, that were introduced into that, it raises a kind of question of, you know, what do you do? It seems to me more like a wasteland question. Not so much about the palimpsestual aspects of it, though they are involved in Parker's judgment there, but rather a question about literary creation itself. And, and in your wonderful exegesis of Taipei, 
essentially it's a liberal project. How does a person, as I hear you, how does a person with sort of maybe intentions towards popular prejudices about savagery begin to slyly, sometimes aggressively, um, move your language in a form of description away from that? A liberal moment where Melville's saying, no, I'm not going to play this for laughs strictly, mm -hmm. though he would come to see Taipei precisely as that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yet he's, you can, what you show is a narrative of an authorial movement, something like that. Mm -hmm. What do you do then with the problem of Pierre, which has its own complex ambitions, mm -hmm. and then you have this, this sort of canonical movement much, much later to place that. How would... Text Lab, which seems a great, powerful tool, put that text into that context. It, it can't, and I'll tell you why. Um, Pierre is, is a novel uh, that Melville wrote right on the heels of Moby Dick, so it was published in 1852. He was actually writing it as uh, Moby Dick was uh, going through um, um, reviews and publication. Um, and the Kraken edition is uh, a textual editor, uh, Herschel Parker's uh, edition of the text that um, is uh, an, uh, 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 that is based on um, his theory that in writing Pierre, Melville got so pissed at the reviewers of, of Moby Dick that he actually changed what was originally just of uh, a kind of psychological gothic tale and um, inserted at the middle and toward the end chapters and sections of, of text that had nothing to do with that original conception but rather lambasted uh, publishers and editors and people that he thought were friends and, and talked about the writing profession. That's a critical um, theory uh, that he had, and so why not use that to create a critical edition? The problem with this is that uh, not only are there no manuscripts for for Pierre, there is no uh, there. There's only one edition of it. It exists it, of all of Melville's texts. Pierre is the unfluidest of texts until Herschel Parker. <laughs> um, and um, so if I were to, to do an edition of, a fluid text edition of Pierre, it would be basically the first edition text compared to Herschel Parker's adaptation of it. Now, uh, he bristles at the idea that this is a, um, uh, an adaptation or that it is a um, condensation. Um, he, uh, however, it's a little flawed, and maybe your point has more to do with larger issues than this, but, so I'll try to be brief. He's attempting to um, identify own, uh, things that happened in manuscript uh, or in the creative process by what he defines are, in, uh, are words and language that um, um, in print that stems from this anger. So this is an angry chapter, and this is an angry. I'm I'm simplifying. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, and, and you should you should look at it yourself. Um, and uh, oversimplifying it, and I mean, uh, and and this is this 
this sentence needs to go and this paragraph needs to go. Um, the problem, and I've written about this, is that it, it, it fails to see that um, Melville's anger was a part of the creative process. It was not against the creative, creative process, and what, it, what he created was what he created, and that intentions shift. And let's give it, let's say he did intend to write a gothic, psychological gothic romance, um, but that's not what he intended to do when he finally finished it. So there's no way to really recreate the original because the original was never finished in Melville's time. Uh, I, the whole theory is that he had this aim and then started to revise himself before he got to the end. You see what I'm saying? So that it's, um, it's a... It's a uh, 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 and, and an addition that uh, says it represents what Melville originally intended, but it, it doesn't and it can't. Um, I think the larger question that you are, are raising is um, forgotten to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it seems to me that, that, that what the Craig issue brings up is the, the problem of the theory behind the text. Um, and that I agree with you that Parker's theory is not based on any evidence that we could know, but but he does make a case for something whole. Yes. And it has to do with that kind of original holism. Yeah, I, I actually have no problems, and I think it's clear from my argument here, that editing is a critical act, and that when editors go in to edit, they they have to put their theories on the table and acknowledge them and embrace them and say this edition um, is is not... Um, uh, it is not theory free, and um, to attempt to do otherwise is is I think not a service to readers or to the editing process. Um, Type E was edited clearly with those with certain ideas set before you. We want, said the editors of the modern edition of Type E, we want to achieve a text that represents Melville without the pressures of his culture on him. And so we are not going to use the um, revised edition that he, that he did and tried to get other people to publish. And that was his final intention. But we're not going to do that because we want to see a Melville that was not pressured into doing that. So they, they say quite good. And, and Herschel Parker has a theory, uh, and, and, and he puts it out. But the problem is that it's a theory that doesn't work. I mean, it falls apart. It, it, it's self-contradictory. Um, I was just wondering if you could, um, like, this is a much broader question, I guess. But um, so you've shown us the ways in which the digital can help, like, reveal the fluid text as a fluid text. But what about the ways that it might erase that fluidity? Like, for instance, if you have a web page that you go back and edit, and at the top it says, like, edited, but you don't know what, like, yeah. you don't have the history of that page. And just, like, to give that a bit of a grounding, I'm not entirely certain how um, the 
text lab works with this like so when you create I, I just in the in terms of the collaborative structure like how are the histories of the various collaborations being stored and represented like how are those like how, how are is, they being how is stored? the process I mean, itself technic like a technologically fluid how are they being stored or or, just, whether, or, or narratively stored because it's all in the revision narrative which I think right. is, the, is kind of the crucial um, um, aspect of, of uh, I mean I'm not the first person to invent the idea of revision sequencing all editors want to know what the sequencing can be and how it will, how it will come my point is that they, each sequence needs to be narrativized and that will give you the history or the context from which that uh, sequence is done and then uh, the more revision narratives we have, facilitated by uh, text lab, then the, the larger the field of discourse about revision will occur. As I said, Neville did it only one way, but we don't know it, and so we have to talk about what it is. That's the only way we're going to get close to, to knowing what the one way was. Um, and um, I think uh, also the, your question is sort of, uh, raised an, uh, an interesting point, I think, about how you read revision. I, sh I showed you the um, diplomatic transcription, which you know simply sort of made uh, uh, the manuscript leaf legible. But you can't you can't read that uh, as a fluid text. It's just it's it, it's it's just there frozen on the page. You can read the words, but you can't see the sequencing that happened in deep time uh, to and the and the layerings of time. So what uh, challenged me as I was working through the protocols for fluid text editing was how could I present as simple a way the, uh, uh, the differences of each step so that a reader could read this way without losing their mind. Because it's very complicated, and it's and things are happening. It seem to be happening at the same time, even though it's only one thing happening at one time. And um, so it's it's a it's a way of reading. It's a new way of reading, in a sense, from step to step. And I think that's what you meant by the different layers of the history of of, uh, of a web page. But you can look. I can show you the 50 different iterations of a wiki that I've created for my students to, to, to analyze a poem. And I can go back to each of those stages from the very first person who put something on. And, and I can show you those, the different things that have been added. But I can't show you um, with, with that history of the wiki, I can't show you the differences that were, that were made, the changes that are made. That's a different narration. That has to happen. I thank you. Um, since we're talking about communities and where we're coming from, I'm coming from Shakespeare studies. So I'm I come, sorry. I come from Shakespeare studies. I'm, no, I, so I'm sorry. You're sorry for me. <laughs> yeah. Nah, don't be, because we've been fluid all along. Oh, that is. Oh, you invented it. In a you sense, it. we've yeah. and, and, and we've been I'm, inventing Shakespeare. Um, exactly, and I'm. Also, of course, we also did variorums at one moment, and now we do new variorums. That is, we historicize the very act of doing the textualizing of Shakespeare and put it in dialogue with performance all the time. And you went some measure in that direction with your talk about adaptation and including 
um, the history of what has been done with the text afterwards. But I was struck, and maybe again, this is about historicizing the very definition of what textual editing does. Right. I hear two generations in your description, the sort of the traditional textual editor and then you <laughs> and others now who are seeing a little differently, it seems to me we have a lot of layers back and pre-world of 19th century print dominance, pre-world where Melville is Melville because of the print right. recovery we know it's not always at the time recovery of these particular volumes and so I was wondering possibly asking if you wanted to press a little further in the direction of instead of talking still about intention talking about performance because why is the identity you're talking about need to be discussed in terms of the uh, attempt to get in the what we call Shakespeare's brain um, mm -hmm. you were talking about Melville's mind uh, why is that still for textual editing the privileged endpoint as distinct, or one privileged endpoint, as opposed to really leaping into performative identity, what do you lose with that move? Oh, that's a good question and nicely put. I, um, and and I, I do want to point out that um, uh, work in, in Variorum is obviously something that, that I uh, um, deeply appreciate. Um, I, um, I I'm not against the idea of intentionality. I just like to spread it around. And, um, and so I think you're really raising a couple of things, intentionality, but also performativity. And um, I, don't, I, I don't see how they are mutually exclusive. And in fact, I think they, they have to be very closely aligned. It's and I certainly don't feel, as I think I've demonstrated, that um, that what I'm trying to to get at is Melville's intentions so much as what can we extract critically from the differences that we see in in the shifting of the words. We know that that I don't know what Melville intended in any of his writing, and I don't want to commit the intentional fallacy, but I do know that he intended to change his writing. And so the focus then becomes on the, the meaning of the change and how I can, uh, can I, how I can achieve that. And so intentionality really becomes less important than, um, in a sense, performativity or how the change performs um, uh, or how, how a revision is a performance of, uh, uh, of a certain kind of intentionality. I think the, the, the tougher question to consider is where do you, how do you identify an identity? How do you, what I found with the Type E manuscript was that I could, uh, I could sense that there were three stages of, of, of revision that occurred at the same time. That is, sometimes he was revising simply to get uh, his transcription, his memory down. Sometimes he was Trans, uh, he was revising in order to transform uh, people into characters, and sometimes he was translating, or he was he was revising in order to make his language uh, more uh, suitable for an audience. And so there are these different kinds of performances that he was doing. But uh, it's not that he wrote one stage and then put that over here 
and then picked it up later and said, well, now I'm going to do transformations, and then now I'm going to do translations. He was doing it all, all three performances at the same time. So how do you intellectually, um, well, let's put it this way, how, how, again, how do you identify an identity? How do you clarify it? And what I was doing was identifying it intellectually, that is, through these three kinds of performances. So I think the more you get into the kind of performance that you were talking about, the, the, um, the, the focus then be sort of becomes on what, what are the strategies of revision. What, and their intentionality and performance, I think, kind of blend. Um, so I like to talk about revision strategies um, uh, in the same context with rhetorical strategies that the revisions had a certain kind of rhetorical effect. Um, I, does that come anywhere near... I, I don't think that answers your question, but I, I hope I'm gesturing to the fact that I'm... Uh, I, I agree with you. Um, that, But... Uh, um, uh, you seem to have a flag called performativity that you want, want to... Not really. Not really. So much as I thought it might. You know, I want to go. Yes. <laughs> okay. Not a flag. Yeah. No. I like flags. No, I was just being provocative. It's it's less about having a flag than as I heard you frame your talk at the beginning, thinking about communities and their use of yeah, right, right. this. It, that felt to me a little in tension with going back to Melville. If, I, if I'm now going to do an ungenerous reading of what I'm hearing, which is not a fair reading, it would be holding on to the great man of the 19th century uh -huh. text. And that you were gesturing in a different direction, talking about uses of. And it seems right. to me that performance, in the very literal sense, uh -huh. by which I mean Shakespeare's plays are put on, and uh -huh. we know at every moment by making it present, we are not right, right. trying to do a museum recovery. We are trying to find some... Right. very difficult to define, not right. definable right. space right. of yeah. possibility. Yeah. And it's well, a cultural space of no, possibility I, I, for us I, now. Yeah. I don't want to erase the author. I'm not saying there is no yeah. author or anything. Or that these aren't fascinating questions. It yeah. just seemed to me the direction you were going went further in that Well, I think way. that's sort of the limitations of, of this particular presentation because the, the strength of the evidence that I can give you has to do with the manuscript and um, I, I could just, you know, I also could have shown you differences that uh, in, in print versions that uh, vary, and also taken a look at those comic books more, more closely and look at, at a film version of Taipei, all of which I think are crucial to our understanding of that. No, I, I'm not uh, by any means hoping that this will um, uh, reify the, 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 the mind of the author, the genius, of, of, and so on. In fact, if anything, it sort of shows you a person floundering um, as much as anything else. Um, but I like your idea of communities and per performance, but I think one of the things is that you don't know that a performance that you're putting on exists as a performance unless you see it in the context of previous performances. And you can't gauge that sequencing of performances um, without looking at the text from which they came. So that my, fe my fear is that uh, adaptation studies can go to the point where it, uh, 
there's, there's kind of a, uh, a chip on my shoulder attitude that I think is, is leaving adaptation studies. That being that um, adaptation studies early on was, let, let me show you how bad this movie is because it's not, it's not uh, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. And, and of course, that's, you know, the, the vacancy of that approach, I think, is, is clear to all of us, but uh, it's taken a while to get, get through that. Still, on the other hand, you can't, you have nothing to talk about James Joyce's Ulysses, the film, unless you have the text to compare it to. So it all becomes a kind of comparative sort of thing, and I think that's what something like Text Lab allows you to do, is to put, is to compare and to narrativize the differences. Thank you. Thanks so much.